0: Now today is a very difficult subject in one sense to speak on because when you speak about these things you touch the lives of individuals who are involved and it's a very emotional situation for some, especially women. And so I want you to know that uh, we are going to present these truths from the Word of God and we're going to do so with as much compassion and love as possible. Uh, but at the same time, we are going to try to present the truth of the Word of God. This is a continuation of our focus on current issues. We like to call them moral dilemmas of the day, because many times these particular situations do present moral dilemmas. And it is our attempt as a preacher and a teacher of the Word, as a pastor, to show from the Word the biblical perspective on these issues and how we can best Respond to them in keeping with God's will. Now, amazing as it may seem to many of us, there is still much debate concerning the question when does a baby become a person? You know, 25, 30 years ago, that question would not even be asked. But today it's a major question when does a baby become a person? I believe it is this question, in fact, that has ignited and kept ablaze the forest fire of the issue of abortion, both here and worldwide, especially in the United States. I believe that it is this question that is still in the forefront of the abortion debate in the United States of America, even as feminists and advocates of humanism celebrate the 35th or 36th anniversary this year of the Wade versus Roe landmark case that legalized abortion in the United States of America. Of course, even here in the Bahamas, our own country, many joined in that celebration. In fact, feminists and those with the United Nations concept of family planning, those who promote abortion as the doorway of equality of the sexes, rejoiced in that landmark decision. But ironically, the women, the woman rather, who originally took the issue to court, and caused the decision to come about, has since become a believer in Jesus Christ. And she's now fighting to have that overthrown, if at all possible. It's an uphill battle, but she's still trying to make it happen. It's a wonderful way the the way God works things out, doesn't he? Now, it is astounding, though, how a goodly amount of Bahamians have made a paradigm shift in their thinking in the the area of morality, that is, as compared to today and to 25 years ago. For example, someone has said, a Bahamian has said this, quote, as close as the 50s and early 60s, the prevailing Bahamian consensus was that the doctor who performed an abortion was a criminal and that anyone who had even thought of having an abortion was devoid of morality, end of quote. Today, however, the pro-abortionists are seen by many to be the emancipators of women. And they're actually being hailed as social heroes by many today. But what is not immediately obvious, or at least not recognized by many, is that this change of thinking, this change of morality, is the unavoidable conclusion of two contrasting or conflicting world views that of the Judeo-Christian and of secular humanism and for some of you those might sound like big words but we'll explain them as we go along I'm sure you know what it means generally in other words the biblical concept of what is man that thou art mindful of him this is the amazement of the psalmist in thinking about God thinking about man Who is man that such a great, wonderful God as you should think of man? That is contrasted with the humanistic idea that man is the measure of all things. Two different views altogether. In a word, the creator is being replaced by the creature as to who has top billing in one's life. Now my concern, which I believe is based on recent history and current trends as my basis, is that if we continue to mimic the mores and moral philosophy of the United States, and we are, there's no hiding that. There's no trying to cover it up, but that's what we're doing. Whatever happens there, when the wind blows, it comes here next day or next week or next month. That's the way it is. But this moral philosophy is coming our way now. In fact, it's even coming now from Europe as well. It's coming especially through the inoculation by the assimilation of the social contribution of returning students from from abroad who tend to dominate positions of power and areas of professional influence in our country. In other words, our students, your children, when they go away, they imbibe this kind of philosophy and they bring it back. And since most of them go into areas, the professional takes them in areas where they dominate the thinking and the direction of the country, it comes down to us as well. That's why, truly, I have a very difficult time now encouraging any of our children to go away to school. Unless you do a real close examination as to what school and where it's going to be located. Because so many of our kids have come back completely different in their thinking. My concern is that we will soon be following in our big brothers, actually I guess today we should say big sisters' footsteps. And we will also be calling for abortion on demand here in the Bahamas as well. In fact, signals are already being sent out in this direction by some from our increasing involvement with and subsequent dependency upon the United Nations in social areas. It's coming and we don't even see it until it's already here. Our social mores and and more and more being dictated by a committee of non-Bahamians who are devoid of our spiritual and cultural heritage, simply because they hold the purse strings that provide us as Bahamians with social programs, which they, this committee outside of the Bahamas, determine will help us keep abreast of the global society. They say we are living in a global village. And so they want everybody to think alike and to act alike. But the basis for our thinking is not to be developed by the people, but is developed by a little elite group in a plush office somewhere outside of the Bahamas. That's what's happening. But we don't see it. Since the money comes in, we could give it to HIV. Since the money comes in, we could give it to providing contraceptives for our kids. Since the money come in, we can give any of the books that come to our schools because the money is providing it. But there's a philosophy behind the money. Traditionally, the consensus of belief was that there was a qualitative difference between man and animals. There was a qualitative difference between man and animals. Today, that has changed. Many are now of the opinion that man differs from the beast only in degree, that is quantitative rather than qualitative. There's a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference between man and animals. This belief eliminates the uniqueness of the human being. It eliminates the uniqueness of the human being. It eliminates the uniqueness of human life. Now the direct result of this thinking is that not only does the, the definition of man becomes relative, but so do the standards for assigning value to human beings. Our value and dignity of human beings become a matter of judgment based on currently held values rather than on an absolute standard. And so it changes depending on who has The louder say. For instance, today a turtle, a dove, a dolphin, a parrot, a grouper, even a dog is seen as being just as, and in some cases, even more valuable than the human being. And they're seeing now that when we talk about abortion, really it's not a woman's choice that is at issue. What is really an issue, what is the central issue in the abortion debate is, how unique, if at all, is a human being? That's the question, not a woman's choice. When does a human being become a person? Now most of you sitting here, boy, well, what a foolish question to answer. I know that, do you? Because usually you, you base your idea, your concept of when a human being, when a baby becomes a human being, on your Judeo-Christian beliefs. But you see, that is what is being challenged today. A contemporary perspective, when a life, or when a baby becomes a human being, is that the fetus is not fully human, but a potential or developing human. It does not have a distinct, independent individuality. Therefore, it is not a person. That's a quote by a scientist. Let me read it for you again. Quote, the fetus is not fully human but a potential or developing human, quantitative. It does not have a distinct independent individuality. Not a person. Therefore, it is not a person which is characterized by individuality. Now, the resulting position here is that, I quote again, No one knows exactly when the fetus becomes human. Whether the fetus is or is not a human being is a matter of definition, not fact. And we can define it any way we wish. End of quote. That was given by G. Hardin in the Journal of Marriage and Family. That's the kind of thinking that your children are introduced to in the universities of the United States of America. Now, if this is true, and here's the resulting dilemma, then the fetus, of course, most of you probably know what a fetus is, right? It's the baby in the mother's womb. If this is true, then, a dilemma arises. Because that would mean, then, that the fetus is not safe at any stage of its existence. Not only that, we have no philosophical, scientific, or moral basis for defining humanness. And therefore, no basis, objective basis, for protecting life as human life at all. You see, this is why we have to think these things through. For instance, in the US, Francis Crick, a Nobel Prize winner, winning biologist, he advocates. That legislation under which newborn babies would not be considered legally alive until they were two days old and had been certified as healthy by medical examiners. so not only you have to be two days you've got to be healthy again Winston L. Duke a scientist in this area says quote a philosophy of reason will define a human being as life which demonstrates self-awareness volition and rationality thus it should be recognized that all, not all men are human that's a new biology that's an article in a book called reason in August Here's what a leading feminist says way back in 1971 quote fetuses aren't human beings a human being ought to have more brains than a puppy dog now you think those are wild statements outside the No, that's not true that's common belief By many in the field. Right here in the Bahamas, a doctor was debating. A Bahamian doctor. And he said that the fetus was a parasite. It was just like an organ that could be discarded like an appendix. You could cut off an appendix and don't worry about it. He says, the fetus. I heard this doctor saying this. And I said, now, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but you know, the little stuff I had taught me told me that a parasite does not normally feed on itself or any of its own kind. It normally feeds on another type. So either this doctor went to some other school or whatever it is. Now, if anything at all, if anything at all, it at least says that this, this, this thing he called the parasite was not a part of the woman. So how could she make a decision saying that I could cut it out, throw it away, do away with it, because it's a part of my body? He was confirming the fact that that what he called a parasite was an individual apart from its mother. That's one way of looking. But it's amazing to me the things these people in these positions say and get away with it. That's how... Humanness is looked at today, generally speaking. Now quickly, and I doubt if I'm going to finish today because my deacons preach so long. <laughs> let's, look now at the, let's look now at the biblical perspective on humanness, very briefly. The origin of mankind from a biblical point of view. Here's what the scripture says. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground that means then physically and materially man is dust in fact the word Adam that's all it means red dirt that's right Adam was a red man anyway if that's what it means red clay all right but although he's only dirt clay dust he was personally formed by God Didn't just happen. The wind just didn't blow all these things together. And suddenly, there was man. No, he was formed by God according to the scriptures. To survive, man must ingest minerals from the earth. And at death, his body becomes a part of the earth again. That's man materially. Look at the second portion of that statement. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, when you look at it from a grammatical point of view the phrase there of life it shows origin and so on it's called a subjective genitive in the grammar but that phrase of life indicates that man's breath is a manifestation of life given by god in other words the life is already there in the breath it was a manifestation of life, not a creation of life job voices the same truth when he says in job 27 verse 3 quote as long as I have life within me the breath of God is in my nostrils Now look at the third aspect of this phrase and the man became King James says a living soul a better translation he became a living being you could use soul if you understand what it means Soul is the result of the union of breath of life with the clay, that dust formed by God. In other words, the soul is animated substance. So literally, soul simply means animated substance. Man then really does not have a soul, he is soul. Soul is not a distinct part of man's being, but rather it describes his physical or material body Animated or made alive by the life of the breath of God. The Bible, therefore, used the fetus as a human entity. He sees the fetus as a complete human being. Life then is seen as a continuum of conception from conception to death. He goes on, same life from conception to death, same life, no degrees, no gradual increase in quality. Life that begins at conception, according to the Bible, is the same life that exists as death. There's no degrading. We can look at that when we talk about euthanasia. Because you see, the same way it's so easy for these people who think this can get rid of a baby, they can also do it to get rid of an old person who is not contributing to society. In fact, one of these same scientists says that everybody over 85 should be killed. And the reason why, they're not contributing to society, they're only draining society. So man is seen as a commodity. Life is seen only as something of quantitative worth, not of qualitative. But now having said all of that, the same thing is said of animals. The same thing is said of animals. For instance, listen to what God says in Genesis 6 verse 17 i am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens every creature notice that has the breath of life in it everything on earth will perish listen again to to psalm 104 verse 25 there is the sea vast and spacious teeming with creatures beyond number living things both large and small when you send your spirit they are created and you renew the face of the earth same thing is said about animals that I've just told you said about man. So what is the difference then? If there is one between man and animals, what makes him unique? What makes humanness unique? I believe it is because man as a human being, homo sapien, is unique because he is made in the image of God. Listen to the word of God again, and listen to the word of God. Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man in his own image. And the image of God, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. That's the difference. Animals are never said to be made in the image of God. They are created after their own kind. But never is it stated that they are made in the image of God. That's the uniqueness. That's the distinction. The distinctiveness between animals and man. Man is created in the image of God. Sounds great, doesn't it? What does it mean? It's amazing how many Christians don't know what it means to be made in the image of God. But yes, that's distinction. That's what makes us different. Well, let's try to think this through. We know that it cannot refer to man's physical being. Why? Because scriptures tell us that God is spirit, not a spirit. God, not a spirit. He is spirit in His nature. John four. We quote it almost every Lord's Day. God is spirit, and His worshippers must worship Him in spirit. And in truth Isaiah 31 3 says the Egyptians are men and not God their horses are flesh and not spirit God is spirit man's dignity value is above animals and cannot be attributed to mere physical qualities listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 9 verse 5 where he makes this clear speaking to speaking to um, What's the name of this guy? Noah. Thank you. The new Adam, the new representative of the human race. Yes, the other old one being wiped out now, and now Noah is the new head of the race as it were. He says, "And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting, your lifeblood. I will demand an accounting from every animal. From every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man." whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed why for in the image of God has God made man powerful st- by the way this is also the foundational statement for the Christian's belief for the execution the, the, of capital punishment the exercise of capital punishment right here it's tied in with the creation of government and the two go hand in hand but our, our anatomy and physiology are suited to our earthly enri- environment Therefore, the image of God must refer to a man's spiritual or immaterial nature. In other words, the image of God denotes man as being a spiritual, rational, and moral being who's able to relate to God on a personal level because God also has these same characteristics. In contrast, animals have or behave in an instinctive or mechanistic mechanistic, uh, way But man is created as a moral being concerned about distinguishing between right and wrong and has values, meanings, and morals. And so now the question really becomes this. Does the Bible teach that a fetus in the mother's womb is made in the image of God? That's the question. In other words, is the fetus in the mother's womb different from an animal? Is the fetus made in the image of God? In other words, is the fetus spiritual, rational, and a moral being by nature in the mother's womb? If it is, then it must be concluded that the fetus is an actual fact a human being. If it does not have these characteristics, or if the Bible is silent in the matter, then there's no biblical support to give us any kinds of absoluteness in our belief that the fetus is a human being. So very quickly. Let's look at the nature of the fetus according to scripture before we close. First the physical aspect, Job chapter 10 verses 8 through 12. Job says, your hands shaped me and made me, will you now turn around and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay, will you turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? This is a wonderful description of the fetus. Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. Powerful statement here of God being responsible for creating the physical body of a human being in the womb. Now listen to David in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Talking about the fetus. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well my frame was not hidden from you when i was made in the secret place that's in the mother's womb when i was woven together in the depths of the earth that's the mother's womb your eyes saw my unformed body in the mother's womb all the days ordained me were written in your book before one of them came to be that's god speaking about the fetus in the mother's womb his hand upon it. And so as you see this, you have to come to the conclusion that the fetus is created by God through the relationship, the sexual relationship, the father and the mother. He does not create the fetus out of nothing when it comes to life. Listen carefully now. He does not create the fetus out of nothing. Life is transmitted or mediated to the fetus by God through the parents. Each individual life is not an immediate, immediate creation of God. It is, a, it is a mediator creation through the reproductive process. In other words, the life that God originally breathed into the nostrils of Adam is transmitted down to his prosperity through parents. Because remember, life didn't begin when God breathed into his nostril. It was just a conveyance of life from God to the body. The Bible teaches, now this is from the biological point of view. See, I want you to try to understand who you are. And why this abortion thing is so important for the Christian to understand their worth. And the worth of the baby in the mother's womb. See, the Bible teaches that the human race is a biological unity sharing one source of life. Listen to Paul in Acts chapter 17. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Notice, from one man he's speaking about the source of life now this would not be true if each life was a distinct out of nothing creation by God that couldn't be true there was no connection this means that man's breath which is associated with life at the creation of the first man is a manifestation or evidence of life it is not the beginning of life even as leaves are the evidence of life in a tree during the spring and summer as compared to winter when it seems to be dead but the life is still there it's only manifested later on it's a manifestation of life not the beginning of life now based on these biblical facts then we can assuredly conclude that the fetus in the mother's womb consists of a physical body personally fashioned by god and it has biological life derived from god through his or the the fetus's parents which is passed on through them and is present at the time of conception you said what's so important about that we were talking we have the talk now about the non, about the moral nature of man what is the fetus morally speaking the image of god in human beings how did that come down morally speaking now in this context the bible teaches That human's sinful nature is transmitted through one's parents. That's where the connection comes. That's where the. If that wasn't true, and each creation, each fetus was a new creation, then God would have to God would have have to determine that every time a person is born, you are connected to Adam's sin by my judicial decree, and not by any DNA we would say today. You understand what i'm saying do you or are you lost this is important for you to understand why it is important why it is important for us to see the nature of god in the fetus one or two scriptures then i promise i will close job 14 4. who can bring what is pure from the impure no one in other words if our sinful nature was not passed down from adam through to us through our parents how did we get a sinful nature and if we did get it from our parents then it has to be sinful that's why job says how can you get something pure from that which is impure he also says in chapter 15 verse 14 what is man that he could be pure or one born of woman that he could be righteous this is a question that means hey no one listen to paul in romans chapter 7 but i see another law another law at work in the members of my body warring against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin where at work within my members within my body listen to david psalm 51 surely i was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me surely you desire truth in the parts you teach me wisdom in the inmost place in other words David is saying that he was sinful from the very moment of his conception and that the moral law of God was within him all the while he was in his mother's womb God taught him truth even when he was in his mother's womb that by the way that is proven scientifically to be true today that babies learn things in their mother's womb I read a startling one of this the other day of have something happened in Canada the mother and the father heard their daughter singing something in the room. She was three or four years old. Well, not singing, but saying something. She said, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. And they are going to sing thing. Where in the world did she get that? The mother said the only place she ever heard that is when she was taking Le Mans classes when she was pregnant. And the baby was repeating it. He learned it. Still in the womb. So then we come to this close. We come to this conclusion. Then God's image in man was passed on by Adam, and on the basis of inherited sin, passed on from Adam through one's immediate parents. And the fetus is a spiritual, morally sinful human being at the time of conception. Based on our overall study, then so far, and we we'll pick it up again after the conference, we can conclude that the Bible teaches on both theological and exegetical grounds that the body, the life, and moral or spiritual faculty of man originate simultaneously at conception. The fetus in the mother's womb, therefore, is not merely a potential person or a potential human being, but rather the fetus is a full human being made in the image of God, and therefore it's a true person with potential at the time of conception. It follows, therefore as night follows day, that since murder, both by biblical and legal definition, means the premeditated killing of a human being apart from self-defense, war, or the unlawful taking of another life, that abortion on demand is an actual fact, fetocide on demand. Abortion, therefore, is not merely the termination of a pregnancy. It's amazing how Pro-abortions like to define abortion in that way, the termination of a pregnancy. but Rather, abortion is the termination of the life of a human being made in the image of God. Now, from a pastoral perspective, this is very difficult. But I want to close by reminding all of us that God is a gracious God. And that confession pun sin, any sin, confession of sin, any sin, God forgives. Where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. And we'll talk about this next time, Lord willing, but no matter what situation as a woman that you might find yourself in in relation to abortion, God is a gracious God. He loves you. He cares for you. And we return to him in faith and acknowledge our sin. God forgives. And God takes away the pain. God takes away the real guilt of anything that you might have done if you put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about that. I don't care what it is. It could be, it, it could be stealing, lying. And by the way, these are on the same level, mind you. Gossiping, backbiting, greed. God forgives and cleanses all of it. He also forgives murder and abortion. And all of these other things. And homosexual, All of those things. Hey, no matter what the sin is. God's grace can cover them all. If we would acknowledge it. And cry out to him for forgiveness. God forgives. If that weren't true. I would not be here today. God is a gracious God. And if you're here today. No matter what your position may be. If you acknowledge your sin. God cleanses. And gives you. A new beginning. That's the grace of God. Let's bow on a word of prayer. we we'll pick this up next time, Lord willing. Let's bow on a word of prayer, and we want to remind you that we will be receiving a benevolent offering as we close today. But if God has spoken to your heart in any way through the word, then relate that to him. If there's any confession you need to make or if there's any commitment you need to make, make that to him. Not to me, not to anyone else, but to him. And as I say to all of you who have any kind of an intimate relationship with abortion, oh, please, take it to God. Allow God to do a work in your life, to give you a new beginning, to remove any sense of guilt, because that's what Jesus Christ died for. He took all of that pain so you won't have to go through it. But you need to acknowledge that you need him. Do that today. Father, thank you for your promise that tells us that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose to which you've sent it today. And all of God's people said, Amen.